As we begin this morning, let me read something else to you as way of setup, so to speak. So, if you this morning could ask one question of the Lord right here and right now, what would you ask? If there is a riddle of your own faith, your walk with God that you'd like to present before your Redeemer, what would it be? Maybe you don't understand why your life has had so much difficulty in it. You thought that the life of a believer was meant to be more of a life of blessing. Or perhaps you think that there are these moments in life where you lack wisdom and you know that your Lord is the ultimate source of wisdom and yet you don't seem to understand why you have these moments where you lack it. Or maybe you recognize that there's way too much anger in your life, that you experience way too much conflict and you don't understand why. Or maybe you know that God is indeed sovereign, yet you know that you're supposed to plan and you struggle with the balance between what's your responsibility and what you can entrust to God. Or maybe you really struggle with getting the best out of God's word You love the preaching of God's word, but when you have the Bible in front of yourself and the privacy of your own time, it doesn't seem like God's living and active word is speaking to you. Or maybe there are moments when you feel like the most insignificant, unrecognized member of the body of Christ, and you feel like you could slip in and out and no one would ever notice you. Or... Maybe there are moments when you wonder if your prayer makes any real difference at all. That's how one commentator in particular began his look at the book of James. He went on to say this, Why have I proposed these questions to you? Because these are exactly the questions that the book of James looks at. The genius of the book that you and I are about to spend our time this morning and throughout the spring and summer looking at is not that it's an amazing exposition of the theology of the gospel. This commentator said that would be Romans. James, he said, is Christianity at street level. In all of its messiness, in all of its struggles, he said there's not a person who has not struggled with their confidence or their faith in God in some way. All right, so take that statement. Another commentator began his beginning look at James saying this, committing to a journey through the book of James is like committing to a physical exercise program with James serving as your personal trainer, except he's not trying to increase the size of your biceps He's working to increase your confidence in God. There isn't one person who has not, as a follower of Christ, struggled at some point with regards to their confidence or faith in God for them and in God in them. James, this commentator says, is going to serve like your personal trainer working by God's grace to increase your confidence in God. As such, he says, James will not let you take the easy way out. He will not let your confidence in God begin to experience atrophy, becoming smaller and weaker. He goes on to say, when you journey into the book of James, you enter the gymnasium of faith. And like the Sermon on the Mount, James calls God's people 
to live fully the kingdom ethic which was established and exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ. But like Jesus, James also seems to set the bar really high. And I want you to really listen to what this guy says now. The good news is this, that by setting the bar really high, James is constantly reminding us that we cannot measure up to this standard in our own strength. And by constantly challenging us, James cleverly and pastorally exposes our desperate need for Jesus. James is ever reminding us that the Christian life can only be lived through our enlivening union with Christ. You ready to look at the book of James? If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to James chapter 1. We are going to spend the rest of the spring and who knows, maybe the bulk of the summer, quite literally being pastored in a street-level look at Christianity and all of life's messiness, quite literally, as Anthony Silvaggio said, being taken to the gymnasium of faith by no one other than the brother of Jesus himself, the man who we came to know in the book of Acts was the pastor and leader of the church in Jerusalem. As we begin this journey through the book of James, we're, we're going to do something else as well. If you were with us a few years ago, we spent some time together as a church family partnering together to memorize the book of Philippians. How many of you were here when we did that? So you remember that. Well, we're going to do it again. Not Philippians, though. This time, we're going together, for those who want to do it, we're going to partner together to memorize the book of James. And we've had a, a PDF put together that will break the book of James out over, I think, like 17 weeks. And we're going to put that out this week so that you can have that. But together, we're going to allow James pastor us as we read and pray through this letter and pastor us through the grace of God as we together memorize this great letter together. So if you're there this morning, we are going to spend our time considering how James begins this letter. James chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, goes like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12, twi- t- 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your gracious and merciful power that woke us up this morning, has brought us together. Your voice speaks to us through your living and active word. This morning, we ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do in this place. That you would speak to us your eternal purposes, your eternal plans to grow us, to mature us, to conform us increasingly into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Lord, it's going to take a miracle for you to bring our hearts to a place of surrender and conformity. We ask that you would do that very thing for us this morning. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If this were a few hundred years ago and I was a Puritan, we would probably spend a good six, eight, maybe ten weeks in verse one alone. Three, four weeks on James, just that word. Another three, four weeks on the word servant. At least three weeks, at least three on the 12 tribes of the dispersion. But we're not going to do that. There are a number of fantastic scholars and and writers who have spent countless numbers of hours doing that very thing. And so what we've done is we've taken the most accessible resources that we can find, those I'm using even as we prepare for this series, and we're going to make those available to you that you can know what they are so that those of you who want to read something like that along with our walk through James can purchase those. You can read with us. You know what we're looking at, and you can read every available scholarly insight on this word James, this word servant, and this word 12 tribes of the dispersion. But this morning, what we're going to do is I want you to understand There are lots of various Jameses in the New Testament, but there are also multiple clues in this letter and even in the beginning that would lead us to confirm that the writer of this letter is none other than James, the brother of Jesus, the man who would lead the church in Jerusalem, pastor the church in Jerusalem. And what I want you to see this morning, just in considering who's writing this letter, and we're not going to spend a great deal of time on this, I just want you to consider from a human perspective, the reality of who it is that's writing this. This man has gone from the little brother, Jesus' younger brother, who as we already saw, if you were with us in our walk through the gospel according to Mark, along with the rest of his family, thought his older brother was crazy. When Jesus was ministering throughout the region of Galilee, his family tried to get him, grab him, and bring him home because they thought he was crazy. They wanted him to stop saying the things that he was saying, doing the things that he was doing. James was part of that family. Something happened. And this younger brother, who thought his older brother was crazy, has now at this point come to the place where where he believes that apart from his brother's sacrificial death in his place for his sins and his victorious resurrection from the grave, he, James, would spend eternity apart from God the Father in hell forever if it weren't for his brother. And if you've got siblings, I just want you to think about that like a human for a minute. And the transforming work of God's grace that's happened in this one man's life And when he begins this letter that he's writing and he introduces himself, he doesn't say, I'm James, Jesus' brother. I mean, there's a lot of social capital there, a lot of leadership capital there. There's a lot of things that that would mean to others. He could say almost whatever he wanted to someone else if he said that. But instead, he didn't say, I'm Jesus' brother. He said, I'm his servant. I was one who was once opposed, not only to my brother, but to the message of God's kingdom. But now, by God's grace, I have committed my life to pastoring others to live in this fallen world fully committed and surrendered to Jesus. I don't know when that happened for James. I don't know what took place. My guess, though, is if you were to go look at 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Paul reminds us that the resurrected Jesus appeared personally to James. 
That probably had something to do with it. But now the brother of Jesus who thought at one point his other older brother, Jesus, was crazy, is now serving to lead God's people in Jerusalem. And there had been a great deal of persecution for God's people in Jerusalem, persecution that led many of God's people to flee the city and go into the surrounding areas. And Pastor James, because that's what he is, Pastor James writes the letter that we have before us to be read and circulated throughout those broader regions where the people of God had been scattered. Something about the letter in particular, though, that I've always found fascinating. If you do pick up any of the resources that we, that we put out and mention to you, you'll, you'll read and all the different scholars, they, they will give you all the various interpretations and ways in which people throughout the centuries have sought to find the internal logic and the internal pattern of this letter. Like, what's the flow? Paul's easy. You read Paul's letters, I mean, it's just, I mean, it is unreal. It's just clear argument after argument after argument. You read James, and it's like he mentions this thing here, and he comes back and mentions it over here, and he sets this thing up over here, and he comes down and talks about it over here, and then he comes back to this thing over here, and for every scholar that you read, they'll give you a different internal logic to the letter that James was writing. And here's here's my take on it. I, I appreciate more than you will ever know the men and women that God has gifted as scholars who write these commentaries for us to help us better understand what's actually being said and and how we can go about applying it to our lives. But here's the thing about the majority of the scholars that write these commentaries. They're not preachers. They're not preachers. Writing a commentary about a passage of the Bible is very different than delivering a, a teaching or a sermon about it. And what a lot of commentators miss, and there's a couple who have picked up on this and I find it extremely helpful, is that when we read the book of James, we're actually reading a sermon. And for those who have preached sermons, you're going to hear it and you're going to see it as you begin to read. James reads very much like the outline that a sermon, that a pastor will take up to the pulpit. It's got a structure, it's got a skeleton, certain paragraphs are probably written out in detail with points underneath that you want to mention and talk more about and flesh out while you're preaching. And then you come back to the point that you made earlier to reinforce how it connects to the main thesis that you're putting together. And you take the beginning and you bring it back at the end to reinforce it to God's people. That's a sermon. And that's what we have here. You go read Paul's letters and he introduces himself and and he prays for the church and he talks about all the things that he loves about the church before he gets into teaching them and arguing with them about what it is that they're failing to believe and, and need to believe. James preaches and James does what every preaching professor, homiletics professor in the world will tell you to do. They'll say, you've got two to four minutes to make people listen to you. That's it. You stand up. You've got four minutes to make someone listen or they check out. Greetings. Let's get into it. That's what James does. It's a sermon. And so in in honor of Pastor James this morning, we are going to look at how James begins this sermon and begins this letter, and I'm going to do it in a very pastor-y kind of way, in a very preacher-y kind of way, things I I very rarely ever do, and you probably appreciate it if I did it more often, but I don't. We're going to look at the beginning of James's sermon to God's people under three headings. Three headings that are all going to sound kind of alike. I did it for you this morning. James is going to give God's people a reality check that we need to see. He's going to issue a radical call that God's people must hear. And he's going to give God's people a reason for them to rejoice. A reality check, a radical call, 
and a reason to rejoice. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. There's a pause right there written in to the text. Count it all joy. You'll, you'll do that when you preach sometimes. You'll, you'll make a statement, count it all joy. And you're going to go, what? And you're expecting me to say things that should help you to consider whatever I'm going to say is joy. And James says, when you meet trials of various kinds. All right, he's got you in two to four minutes right there. You're going to have to explain what you just said to me, James. Well, James starts by he giving God's people a reality check that they desperately need. He states something that is inherently obvious, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we, we fail to actually apprehend with our lives and, and see. And that's simply this, that life in a fallen world is full of various trials, even for followers of Jesus. Look at what he says. Count it all joy when, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. And I love the way that James says this. The way that James talks about these various trials, these trials of various kinds, does nothing but help to expose just how unnuanced and untextured and flat the English language really is. When he talks about the, the various trials that we will face, this word various carries the, the tone of multicolored, variegated, textured. It's a word that speaks of, of something that's very nuanced, that can be, have varying differences. And when he applies that variety, that variegated nature to trials, it begins to open up the world of possibilities as to what he's talking about. He knew very specifically what some of the people that he was writing to were going through. He knew the poverty, he knew the suffering, he knew the persecution, but he knows as a good pastor, he's speaking to a broader audience than just one or two or three or four or five different people. So he uses this nature, this language, to expose the, the broad nature of the various trials that we're going to have to face in this life in a fallen world, which begins to help us see that when we talk about trials in this way, it could be a momentary irritant, it could be traffic. The person in front of us who doesn't use a blinker, or life-altering difficulties like cancer. It could be an accident that we experience. It could be a sickness that we have to endure. It could be poverty that comes upon us. It could be anxiety that we wrestle with in an unceasing way. And it doesn't have to be something that happens in the world that we live in that we have to encounter. James uses this exact same word for trials in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 where it's translated temptation. Oh, the variegated, textured nature of the trials that we face. They're not just outside of us. They come from inside of us too. And because he uses this word and paints this, this picture of the, the textured nature of trials, we're reminded that it's not just bad things that constitute trials. Good things constitute trials for people as well. How do we respond to something like an, an increase in wealth? Knowledge. Skill. Authority, position. What about the trials that we face in simply trying to live an obedient life to Christ in a fallen world? The people James is specifically writing to, they, they've placed their confidence and their hope in this life now and for eternity in Jesus. And, and on the surface, that seems to have brought nothing on earth but trials into their life. 
It's a reality check that James needs God's people to see and to hear. Life in this world, even for followers of Christ, it's full of various trials. Okay, so, so how, Pastor James, are we supposed to respond to these trials? Okay, he, he understands what he's saying and he can already hear what people are asking and what they're saying. So how do we respond to these various trials that we encounter, Pastor James? Well, Pastor James is now going to issue a, a radical call to how to respond to these various trials that God's people need to hear then, God's people need to hear now. Listen to what he says. Count it, the reality of the trials, all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers. Now, we're going to need to slow down just a bit. If we don't slow down and, and pay careful attention to what James is saying here, you're going to do something in this life with good intentions that I've done more times than I ever want to admit and you may have done or may have been on the receiving end of and you're going to find yourself in a moment of crisis with someone who's going through a various trial that has been brought into their life. They're at your front door with tears and the first thing that's going to come to your mind is James chapter 1 verse 2 and you're going to look at them and you're going to say, count it all joy. And with the best of intentions, you're going to absolutely crush them. we want to understand what James is saying, we need to be clear on what he's not saying. James is not issuing a call for God's people to try to find some sort of pleasure in their pain. That's one direction people tend to take this. He's not calling God's people to celebrate the various trials that they go through as though somehow the no pain, no gain mantra is what defines the Christian life. He's not saying go find a way to celebrate the trials. He's also not saying, go try to seek out these various trials as though somehow they're a means to a greater joy. God's people through the years have kind of taken it that way. But most specifically and practically for you and I, James chapter 1 verse 2 is, is not meant to be the first line of response in crisis care for someone you love. When, when Jesus came to Mary and Martha, two, two women who had a particular place in his heart, whom, whom he loved. And their brother, who Jesus had loved, Lazarus, was, was dead. And Jesus came to Mary and Martha, and they're, they're weeping, and they're, they're overwhelmed by the reality of what's happened, and that Jesus wasn't there. Jesus didn't put his arm around Mary and Martha and go, Sisters, count it all joy. Oh, he, he cried. He wept. He sought to comfort them. When Pastor James is writing this letter to God's people, what he has in mind when he issues the call for God's people in the face of the reality of various trials in a fallen world, and he calls them to count them, count the reality of those trials, all joy. What he's after is the cultivation of a particular attitude, a, a particular perspective, a particular view of the reality of those trials. He's not talking about how they're supposed to feel in the midst of those trials. <clears throat> When James says count 
the reality of these various trials, James is using a thinking word. He's not using a feeling word. To count something, the way he's talking about here, is talking about taking something into careful consideration. Forming a, a, a particular judgment on something. Coming to a settled conviction about something. That's what he means when he says, count the reality of these trials. He said, come to a settled conviction regarding the reality of these trials. And, and this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says that he has counted. He's come to a settled conviction. He has found the importance of something as greater than the importance of something else. And Paul says, I have counted everything as loss compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus. I have come to a settled conviction regarding the reality of everything that I have lost in light of something else, but I'm getting ahead of myself. James is, James is using thinking words here. What he's after is the bigger perspective that we have regarding the reality of the things that we face. I want you to hear this here, and I'm going to be repetitive here. I want you to hear this. He's not appealing to your emotions. James is not talking about how you and I are supposed to feel during various trials. He's lifting us up to a perspective that he's calling us to have regarding the reality of the various trials that we face. He's not appealing to your emotions. He's not saying when you encounter various trials in this life, be they internal, be they external, be they positive, be they, be they negative, it's just supposed to be happy, happy, happy. It's not what he's saying. I can't help but think, and I'm going to date myself here, and some people in the other services understood this, but I can't help when I, when I read this and to think about the soldier in, in Monty Python's search for the Holy Grail, like gets his arm cut off, and, oh, it's maybe a flesh wound, and he gets his other arm cut off, oh, it's just a flesh wound, and he gets his legs cut off, oh, it's just a flesh wound. Everything's good, happy, 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 we're going to keep going on. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's not appealing to you the emotions that you have in the midst of a trial. See, what happens is when we read this, we have a tendency to be very sloppy in the way that we understand what he's talking about. And when we read joy, we naturally import by definition into there what you and I understand as happiness. It's not the same thing. James is talking about the cultivation of an attitude or a perspective, not talking about the emotion that may or may not be felt in the midst of something. So to help us out, there, there, there's a woman in Nashville who, who writes just wonderful studies on, on New Testament books. Her name is Carol Ruvolo. And, and writing about James, she's kind of talking about this challenge. And, and she says that in, in our day and in our culture, happiness is an emotion that's rooted in people, circumstances and possessions and happiness can slip away from us when people act up and circumstances go haywire or our possessions may disappear pastor james she says is not saying that when we go through various trials that we're to feel nothing but happiness that somehow it might be sub-biblical to feel anything other than that that would do away with two-thirds of the Psalms, the entire book of Lamentations, and the life of so many of God's great heroes. That's not what James is saying. 
The joy that he is calling God's people to here is in a general perspective. Think about a filter that goes over a light that begins to color the way that light comes out. It's talking about a perspective that colors the way that we see the reality of the trials that we go through in a fallen world. And what he's saying, what what Pastor James is calling God's people to is a perspective that views the reality of the various trials that we face in all of their texture and all of their difference and in all of their nuance, be they internal, be they external, be they coming from something like like increasing in, in in our wealth or coming from decreasing in our wealth in poverty, wherever they may come from. He's calling for a particular perspective on the reality of the trials that we face but sees them in light of eternal realities that we know to be true. Thinking words. He's calling us to see the reality of the various trials that we face in this life in light of eternal realities that we know to be true. Again, it's the same way the Apostle Paul pastors and counsels the churches he writes to. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider... Same word. Same word translated here as count. Come to a settled conviction. A particular perspective is now coloring the way that I see something. I consider that our present sufferings, sounds like James, doesn't it? Various trials that we may meet in this life, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed within us. In light of what I know to be true about the the reality of God's eternal purposes and plans, I count our present suffering as not worth comparing it to. Okay, Pastor James. Life's still hard. Various trials. I, I, I got it. I feel it. I feel it inside myself. I, I want to count them as joy. I, I want to see them through the eternal realities and purposes that God has. And so help me, Pastor James, what are the eternal realities that are meant to color and shape my perspective on the reality of the trials that I feel and I face right now so that I can consider them and come to a settled conviction that the reality of these trials and the life that I live right now are worth rejoicing? Glad you asked. That's where James goes in verses 3 and 4. James is going to give God's people a reason that they can count them as all joy, that they can rejoice. Verse 3, for you know. Thinking word or feeling word? For you know. What do you think? Thinking or feeling? Thinking. Pastor James is not dismissing how people feel during the trials. What he's calling people to is an attitude or a perspective that they view the reality of the trials that they face in this life that's not rooted in how they feel during the trials, but in what they know to be true. You've got to read him. Read him slow. He's calling us to understand, to view, to have a settled conviction on the reality of the trials that we face in this life, not rooted in how they make us feel. And he's not dismissing how they make us feel. But he's calling us to a settled conviction rooted in something else. And that's specifically what we know to be true about their eternal realities and purposes. 
Ask me how I feel during something, I feel awful. Ask me how I feel about having to come home to a a family that's going to have to bury their firstborn child, I feel awful. I don't feel anything good about that. And that's me being selfish. I'm not talking about them. Count it all joy. He's not dismissing the way we feel. He's calling us to a settled conviction regarding the reality of those trials based on something else we know to be true, that we can hold on to, that we can stand on. And listen to what he says. For. What does for mean? What's another word for for? Because, right? So it's a causal statement. So James is not telling them as a pastor something he doesn't believe they don't already know. He's calling them to have a settled conviction on what they already know to be true about the eternal purposes and realities that then help them face and have a perspective on the trials that they're going through. You you already know this. Pastor James is is, is looking at God's people and he says, you can actually face the realities and the trials and, and the variety of difficulty of life in a fallen world with honesty. That means emotion. That means experiencing the reality of the trials and not having to fake it, not having to act like it's not real, with honesty, with sincerity, with transparency. And you can do that because your settled conviction about the reality of those trials and your perspective of those trials is not cultivated by the emotions that you feel in them, but you see them in light of eternal realities. You know the testing of your faith. It produces, not can produce, not might produce. It produces steadfastness. These various trials serve to refine the faith of God's people. And I use the word refine specifically and intentionally because that's really what that word testing means. Now, this is where you and I, we import our experience and we read words and the English language is kind of flat. And so when we read this, if the majority of you are not too far out of school, some of you are still in school. So you hear testing and you hear pass-fail, right? Good, bad, pass-fail. It's not what this word means at all. This word is best defined as, as refining. This word is taken from, from the world of, of, of metallurgy. When people would dig for, for precious metals, even today, when they dig out a precious metal from the earth, they don't dig out pure steel or, or pure gold. They dig out something covered in ore. And ore is, is not attractive and it's, it's not strong. So what a metallurgist has to do is he has to take that ore and he has to apply a certain level of heat to that ore. And then he applies a, a catalytic agent to that ore. And that catalytic agent and that heat work together to take the imperfections of that ore and begin to drive them out of that metal. They begin to rise to the surface so that that ore and that imperfection can be cleaned away, can be taken away, and the beauty of that metal be revealed and the strength of that metal be increased. It's a refinement of it. That's what James is talking about here. He's not talking about testing pass-fail. He's not talking about testing to determine whether or not you have confidence in God or whether you have faith in God. He's talking about a refinement that's intended to to, to produce and refine the genuineness of the faith you already have. So I'm going to have to make it kind of apply if you're going to understand me because I can see you fading. Another pastor, much wiser than I, his his name is Alec Motyer. He's in in England. I want you to hear an example of how this works itself out. He says that you and I say that we believe that God is our Father. 
Agreed? He's our father. But as long as we remain untested, same word, unrefined, on the point of our belief, it will fall short of a steady conviction. But suppose the day comes, as it does, and and certainly will, when circumstances seem to mock your creed. Don't you listen to him? He, he, He speaks so much better than I do. Well, they invented the language. But when circumstances seem to mock your creed, when the cruelty of life denies his fatherliness, when his silence begins to call into question in your heart his almightiness and the sheer haphazard, meaningless jumble of events challenges the possibility of a creator's ordering hand. You've you've felt some of those before, haven't you? It's here, he says, it's in this way that life's trials refine, test the genuine faith of God's people. It's here that an idea becomes a steady conviction. James says this refining, this process of removing from us that which would keep us from coming to that steady conviction, it begins in the very trials of life to rise to the surface. And for God's people, it begins to be an opportunity of repentance, removal of those things that have kept us from coming to a steady conviction about who God is for us and even who God is in us in the midst of this trial. But it's not just a removal of things in the refinement process. It's a production of things as well. So James says that this refining of our faith through the very trials in our life actually produces in us steadfastness. So as God allows various trials of different kinds into our life for whatever period of time he so ordains, he does not allow them in for the purpose of producing defeat in his people. They're there that they might produce steadfastness. And boy, that's a beautiful word. Again, so flat when I say it, steadfastness. That word carries the picture, it carries the weight of remaining under something for a long period of time. Another commentator was trying to define, find find words in our language to define this, and, and they said it's successfully carrying a heavy load for a long period of time. And I always think of those pictures as a kid from National Geographic of of far off places that I thought I would never be able to go to. But you see men and and women carrying these massive loads of of water or food from gardens miles away from their home and their villages. And they're carrying them over their backs with, with these sticks and these baskets hanging and these huge jars on their head. And they carry these massive weight of food and water for miles through different terrain back to their home to feed their family. That's steadfastness. It's remaining under a heavy weight for a long period of time. It means having staying power or stickability. And one of the challenges, even in translating and in understanding what's being said, is that this particular word we have is steadfastness. It's used throughout the New Testament in a lot of places, but very often it's translated with a different word. You know what the word is? Patience. Incorrect? No. Incomplete in carrying the tone? Yes, because when you and I hear patience, we hear passivity. Maybe you won't agree with me, but if you're honest, you will. Patience, sit back and let something happen. Passive. Steadfastness is not passive, it's active. 
It's remaining under a heavy weight, carrying a heavy weight for a long period of time. Another fantastic writer on the New Testament, Sophie Laws, she says that steadfastness is active. It's not passive submission to circumstances. It's active and it's strong. It's the word the writer of Hebrews used in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, where he said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with steadfastness the race that's before us, looking to Jesus. Pastor James is saying that you can look at the reality of the variegated trials and the nuanced trials that you face in a life, in a fallen world, and you can count them as joy because you see them with the perspective colored by the eternal realities and purposes for those trials, and you can know that no longer will you believe that those trials are signs of God's unfaithfulness to you or his inattentiveness to you. Rather, you can look at those trials and count them joy with a settled conviction, knowing the eternal purposes and realities for those trials are God's transforming and active grace at work in you. And steadfastness, as amazing as it is, I mean, if God were to use the various trials that he allows into our life to refine the genuineness of our faith, that it might produce steadfastness in our confidence and reliance in him to remain under things for a long period of time fixed upon the eternal realities of what he has said about who he is and, and what he's doing, that would be amazing. But James says that's not the end of it. As, that would be enough but it's not the end. James says, we, you and I, we need to let steadfastness have its full effect. Which also means that you and I are going to be tempted to not let steadfastness have its full effect. Steadfastness can get tiring. Steadfastness can lead us to a point of feeling like we just want to set it down. And when we come under the weight of feeling like we just want to be done, we can be tempted to, to count these trials with a different perspective. We can begin to count them as God's inattentiveness to us, his disapproval of us. Our heart can even put him on the judgment seat and count him unworthy of our affection. And as we count these trials in a different manner, our, our heart can be tempted to begin to say, well, you know what? I, I've been praying and that really hasn't been working. So I've been trying to, to meet him in his word, but I, I don't think anything seems to be happening. And I know he, he's given us his people to help work his grace in us, but I just would rather be by myself. And a new perspective begins to set in and a new perspective begins to color the way that we see the realities of the circumstances and situations that we're in and that produces a different response to those things and we can begin to come comfortable in heart with distance from God. Coldness between us and him. And Pastor James knows it and he says, you've got to let steadfastness have its full effect. I know you're going to want to take on a different, a different consideration, a different idea you want to put it down. You've got to let it have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, 
Pastor James is saying it's this steadfastness that God is cultivating in our heart through the refining of our faith by the various trials that he has called us to face in this life so that we might set our heart and our mind firmly on what we know to be true about the eternal realities of his purposes and who he is and what they're for. And that would bring us in his sovereign plan to maturity. That's the argument Pastor James is giving God's people. Maturity. God uses these trials to refine us and cultivate steadfastness in us. Steadfastness that has the the capacity of growing us up. That we would lack nothing. Come to completeness. That which we seek to grow in and mature in day by day in life and all fallen world, but Pastor James is a a wise pastor. His heart's captured by the reality of who God has been for him and his brother and who God continues to be to him through his grace. And so his eyes aren't just set on the growing maturity of God's people right now in the face of this life. His eyes are set even further knowing that there's going to be a day when God's people will stand before him. And, And in that day, in that day, you will you will not lack any good thing. You will be made completely and fully formed completely into the likeness of your Lord and of your Redeemer. James is a good pastor. He knows for himself and he knows for God's people. You're you're not there yet. If you live under any delusion that you might be really close, just ask someone who knows you. If you're married, ask your spouse. If your parents are still here with you, ask them. We're not there yet. And so the work of refinement continues. I had no idea years ago of a situation that we were going to face as a family when I was taking a class um, in a seminary and the professor was talking about this refining work of God in the life of God's people. And I was just captivated by what he was saying. I went back this week and was looking at what I had written down in in class and I couldn't help shake it then. I didn't know how it was gonna help me in the months to come and I didn't know how important it was going to be for understanding what Pastor James is even saying here. But this is what my professor, I love him, he's a great pastor, his name's Paul Tripp. He said, you've got to come to the place where you're settled in your conviction and understanding that God is going to allow you to encounter things in your life that you would have never chosen for yourself. And these things that he allows into your life that you would have never chosen for yourself are actually an act of his unrelenting grace. And the way he phrased it then that stuck with me even now is he simply said, God in his unrelenting, transforming grace will take you where you do not want to go so that by his unrelenting and transforming grace, he will produce in you what you could never achieve on your own. He said, your Lord is a Lord of perseverant, heart and life transforming grace. And so I hear James and he says, count it all joy. 
He's not done yet. He's not satisfied yet. He's going to continue to work in the small moments of life and all the way through the biggest moments of life to complete the work of his transforming grace that he's already begun in you. And so as I was flying home last night and thinking about this morning and, and thinking about what Pastor James was, was saying and, and just who he was and what that must have meant to him, all of a sudden I started hearing the, for the joy that was set before him. For, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. In light of the eternal reality of what he knew to be true, Jesus, steadfast, enduring the suffering, enduring the shame, I sat there on that plane and thought, man, I... I fail to be steadfast so often. I'm not. He was. If I'm really honest, I, I face these various trials that seem too much, and I don't have a settled perspective on how to see him, and I begin to question him. I begin to wonder if he's being inattentive. If I'm really honest, I, through times when I allow that, that other perspective to create a distance between myself and him, and my heart can grow settled and comfortable with that. And I thought, for the joy that was set before him, steadfast, he endured. The suffering, the pain, the shame. He, he died on that cross in my place for my sin, sin that had created a distance between God and I that in no way, shape, form, or fashion I could ever make up for or cover. He endured steadfast that I might be able to draw near. And it hit me sitting on that plane last night. He endured on that cross that I might be drawn near. And when he endured steadfast in the midst of the suffering, he endured for the moments when I'm not steadfast. He, he was steadfast on that cross for the moments that I think he just doesn't care. For the moments when I think he's just being inattentive. For the times when I'm, I'm comfortable with the coldness and the distance that's set in. He was steadfast that we would draw near. He gave his life that we would have life. Friends, in just a moment, we, we have the privilege and the opportunity to not just remember the steadfastness of Jesus 
on the cross in our place for our sin, achieving for us that which we could never achieve on our own and paying the price for our sin, reconciling us through his body to his father by his death, but he endured steadfast for the moments when we are most faithless. This morning, as we take a moment to allow you to just prepare as to come forward and receive communion and take a piece of bread, remembering his body steadfast and dip it in that cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to take a moment and just be honest with yourself about the times when steadfastness seems so far away from you, about the times when counting the reality of these trials as, as joy, knowing the eternal realities and purposes that God has for his people. It, it just doesn't even seem to be in your vocabulary. I want you to be honest with yourself and with God about that. And I want you, as you celebrate this morning with communion, to remember that on that cross, steadfast for your sin, he died for those moments too. He died that we would live by his grace, his unrelenting mercy would continue the work that he began in us. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. Lord, thank you this morning for the perspective, for the vision that Pastor James begins to give us. Thank you that, that you are unrelentingly at work by your grace to complete what you have already begun in us that we would do that which you've set before us. Thank you that by your mercy, for your glory, your grace is working, is refining, is producing steadfastness in us. And Lord, it's going to take a work of you right now this morning for us to do this. But I would ask that you would work in our hearts this morning to receive the comfort that James is offering your people this morning, but also that we would receive the call that he issues. We ask that you would work this out in us this morning for your glory, for our joy, and our steadfastness to the end. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.